started? You know, the first service, I was out greeting people, and everybody just got quiet, and I had to run up here and begin to preach, and I said, our services are a lot more rowdy, so the second service is a lot more like our services at Redeemer City Church, so good job, second service. My name is Casey Johnson. I'm one of the two pastors at Redeemer City Church, was the Vine's first church plant. We planted about three and a half years ago, and we've been meeting at Chavez Elementary over on the far southwest side of Madison, kind of where Verona and Fitchburg and Madison meet. And we've got some exciting news. If you haven't heard already, we, we bought a building, and we're in the process of renovating it and getting ready. And I know you guys just went through this about a year and a half ago, so you know how exciting that is for us right now. We actually had four of the Vine people coming out and volunteered with our demo, and I think Jamie posted some pictures to Slack. She took a lot of pictures, so I'm assuming it got posted. I haven't checked it out yet, so if you want to see more about what we're doing as a building, check out those pictures on Slack. But let me just tell you like one cool thing that we get to do with this building. When we looked for a building, we really wanted to be in an under-resourced neighborhood, and we found a spot in Fitchburg that a lot of the businesses were, were going out of business. All the retail was moving out. So we get, found a good deal on a building that was right in an area that's very under-resourced. And perhaps the resource they missed the most is a building space. There's no space to vote, do neighborhood association meetings, do any kind of programming for kids and whatnot. So we're partnering with the city. We're bringing some resources in. Uh, we're going to empower some leaders in that area and also just be present in this community and use our building for the benefit of the neighborhood there. So really excited about what we're doing. Pastor Zach's out of town this week, so he asked if I would preach, and I said, man, with our building project, I said, I really don't have time to prepare another message, so can I recycle uh, my last message? And he said, that would be no problem. So last message I preached was um, Christmas Eve service, so uh, (laughs) that's what you get this morning. Let's see, where, where are we? So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Welcome here tonight. Just kidding. Um, Almost equally as awkward, though, we're talking about money this morning. At Redeemer City, we've been going through a Proverbs series. So this is Wisdom and Wealth, and this is the last message I preached. And just so you know, Zach didn't say, hey, will you come in and, and preach on money? Because our people need to be a lot more generous. This is just the sermon I had in my back pocket. And we're churches that don't talk about money a lot. So if it's awkward for you, I apologize. But... What I'm really hoping is that this message changes your view of wealth this morning, that it's just not something that that you just listen and you forget about, but it actually changes your view on what money is and how you are to use it for the glory of God. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we just come before you this morning, and we recognize that everything we have is just because of your goodness. You are a giver of all good gifts, and Father, we just pray that you would change our view of money. Holy Spirit, change our hearts, turn our eyes away from the things that our world sees, and turn them towards you and the things that you are all about. We ask this in your name. Amen. Has anybody ever heard of Crown Financial Ministries? Okay, a few people in the room. Um, Crown Financial Ministries was started in the Georgia area by a guy named Larry Burkett, who's since passed, I'm sure you've heard of, and also a guy named Howard Dayton. Howard Dayton was a friend of my father-in-law's, and my father-in-law actually helped Crown get to Florida when it was first started, and uh, really knows Howard well. And when I got engaged to his daughter, Angela, 
one of the rules they had in the house is that everybody had to graduate from a Crown Financial Ministries class if he wanted to be included in his will. Um, so obviously we, we took that class and we graduated from that class, but his, his reasoning behind that is because if he was going to work and have this money that he was going to give to his children when he passed one day, he wanted to make sure that we, we didn't view money the way that the world does, but we view money the way the scripture teaches us, the way God has created us to be able to use it. And in this crown class, like one of the first premises is this contrast between the way our world views money and what scripture teaches. And it's this. Society says, you earned your money, now spend it in any way you choose, and you'll be happy. We all get that, right? We've been around that a few times. Scripture says, you can only be content if you have been a faithful steward handling money from the Lord's perspective. I might be sitting there and thinking, okay, there's not much of a contrast there. Can't those be used kind of interchangeably? Does it, does it really matter? And I'm, I'm going to tell you that these perspectives are vastly different, so different. And the problem is, is if we use our money society's way, what happens is you get caught in this perpetual treadmill of never quite having enough. It's, it's almost, I almost have enough, and it will be there forever. We try to keep up with the Joneses, and we chase this American dream that can't possibly be caught. Let me give you an example from my own life. Take my house, for example. Ten years ago, um, I was in seminary. We had our, our first house that my wife and myself bought was this townhouse. And it was great. We loved it. It was, it was our first house. You're always going to love your first house because you're moving out of an apartment into something better that is yours, and you can put holes in the walls and paint it however you want. It's fantastic. Right? But there was a few problems. You know, we shared a wall with a neighbor. People would take our parking spots. We didn't really have a yard for people to play in. And 10 years ago, like, if I would have dreamed of the house that I'm in right now, I would have said, oh man, that, that is the perfect house. That is, that is all we need. Fast forward 10 years, we have that house, and you know where I'm going with this, right? Because you probably do the same thing if you're a homeowner. You drive down that other neighborhood, coming into your neighborhood. You look at those other houses and you think, wow, wouldn't that house be nice? Like, look, look at the front porch on that house. And then you go home and you start dissecting your own house and what God has provided for you. And I catch myself going, man, if I only had one of those three to four season porches outside, oh, I could go out there with my coffee and my Bible in the morning. And man, those would be holy reasons, God. If I only had a house that I could do that in. And man, you know, that would be so much more edifying if I didn't look into my neighbor's backyard, if I had that mountain to look at, you know, there's no mountains in, in Wisconsin, by the way, uh, but maybe a, a bluff or just not my neighbor's yard, like some trees or something, so I could be part of nature. With, and, and we just need a bigger yard for our kids to play in. God, I, I just need like 700 to 1,000 a, a more square feet in my house and a bigger yard. Is that too much to ask? You know, you catch yourselves just looking at other people's things and going, man, if I only had that. If I just had... Just, 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 just a little bit more. I talked to a woman recently. She was at our church, and she was um, visiting one of her, her children who's a member of our church. And uh, she just thanked me for this message and, and said, I'm going to visit family, and they have a lot of money. And they have this huge house, and they're caught up in materialism, so they have all these toys and things. And every time I visit them, I come home, and I look at my own house, and I don't like it. 
And she said, I have a nice, modest farmhouse. I'm in the country, I have land, and I should be content with it, and I know I'm going to come home, and I'm going to be discontent with what I have. We get caught in that cycle of just, just wanting something else, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and then you get that, and then guess what? You just want a little bit more again. It's like we've been given this, this measuring tool for our wealth, and we just put this next to it, and it says, not quite enough. We get a little bit more, and guess what? It still says not quite enough. You can just never measure up on that measuring stick. We just get caught up almost having enough. Our society says, you earned your money, now spend it any way you choose, and you'll be happy. But the truth is, we live in a culture of materialism. If you keep trying to spend it and find happiness there, you are never going to find it. It's going to be a moving target. You're going to spend all of your time just focused, trying to get there, and and you're never going to find it. You're never going to have enough. You will never be content and therefore never be happy. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. You know what this verse says? It's not like your money just magically disappears, although it might feel that way sometimes, right? When you look at your bank statement and go, Where did all my money go? Well, you, you spent it. That's, that's where it goes. That's what tends to happen. But what it's saying is that if, you're, if your goal is, is that I just need more money, that I'm going to be happy, you're always going to be looking and going, where's all the money? It's, it's going to be gone because it will never fulfill you in that kind of way. And here's why. Because left to spend our money on our own, apart from God, we will always use our money in a way to replace God. Let me say that again. Left to spend our money on our own, apart from God, we will always use our money to replace God. It's called an idol, right? I'm sure the vine talks about that a lot. And an idol is anything that you use to try to find fulfillment or contentment outside of God. Some theologians break this down into stemming from like three to five heart conditions. Say these are the root of all of our idolatry are those three to five things. And I'm just going to hit on four of these that I think are pretty relevant as far as as money goes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to list off one of these idols, and then I want you to respond. This is going to be actually interactive. I don't know if you do that or not. But I want you to say, according to this idol, do you use money to chase this idol by spending or saving? Okay? So spending or saving are the answers. So if you have an idol of security, what do you do with your money? Yeah, you save. If your idol is security, you can never have enough money in your bank account. You can never have enough money. When, when we first got married, my, my wife, like she just grew up always having enough money. So when we struggled and went through seminary and our bank account would be getting low, you know, she would just get nervous. And, and it was like that's what she was accustomed to. Her security was in the bank account. So you always want to try to have as much money in your bank account as you can. And then guess what happens? You don't need to depend on God. You don't have to have them meet your your daily needs because all your security is in your bank account. So just make that bank account big enough and you're going to be okay. What about comfort? Spend, yeah. Yeah, this is a spending idol. If your your idol is comfort, you will spend money. You'll go on lots of vacations, toys, nice cars, nice house, lots of entertainment because you think, if I just have enough comfort, I'm going to be content I'm going to be happy. So you use your money by spending to try to find this idol 
of comfort. And not that there's anything wrong with comfort, or security for that matter. The problem is, is when you seek to find this, and that alone, outside of Christ. When you develop that idol. Um, I'm going to just give you the answers for these other ones, because I actually set you up for failure in these. Um, power. If idol, uh, power is your idol, it could be both. It could be save or spend. You could have power by having a large bank account and, and saving up all your money, or you could have power by, by spending it, by having this big portfolio and investing in companies and, and other kind of things. You can seek power with money by saving or spending if power is your idol. Then finally, approval. And this is both as well, because this isn't so much about yourself. This is about those whose admiration you are trying to steal. So it all depends on them. Like, if, if theirs is, is about getting admiration by, by spending, then you're going you're gonna to buy nice things. You're going to have memberships to cool places so that you get their admiration. Um, or, and you find this often in, in the Christian world, is that you don't spend, that you save, and you actually maybe even live your life through a lens of poverty and think, look at how spiritual I am because I, I don't spend money. You know, if you struggle with this, you might perhaps go out to dinner, and when people tell you, hey, what'd you do last night? You're like, well, we went out to dinner, but we had a gift card, okay? You know, we're not going to spend money on food, for goodness sakes. You know, we, we don't want to spend money in that kind of way, or at least have a, a coupon or something from a Bucky book, right? Because if, if you think that I just got to save money and I don't want to live anything like the world, then you might actually save. As you can see, there are good things in all of these, but... Ultimately, it's an idol when you look for that alone to fulfill and satisfy you outside of Christ. Another way to turn our society's teaching is to say, it's your money, spend it any way you want to get your idol, and you'll be happy. But the truth is, using money in any of these ways, which is supposed to bring us happiness, and makes promises that it can't keep, will always leave us wanting more, which requires more devotion, more time, and money ultimately can't deliver that. You will never find happiness or contentment in our society's view of wealth. You know, Jesus warned us about that. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, you can't say that Man, I'm completely devoted to you, God, if, if your bank statement says something else. If your bank statement says, I'm living like the world, but God, but God this, this is all mine. You know, this is separate from you. My relationship with you is good. You can't say that you serve God and you're devoted to him if your bank statement says something else. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money, which leads us to our second point. First, we looked at wealth in the wrong place. So secondly, we're going to look at wealth in the proper place. Look at Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You know, first appearances from this almost look a little prosperity gospelish, doesn't it? If you're not familiar with the, the prosperity gospel, it just says that, you know, if you just check off all the right boxes and do the right things, then you're going to force God's hand, and he's going to have to give you wealth. He's going to have to give you lots of good things. Some problems 
with a prosperity gospel. It's kind of viewing God like he's a genie in a bottle, and if we just rub it, he's forced to give us those three wishes, because that's the rules of the genie. I don't know if you knew that or not. One might look at this passage and, and think, so you're telling me all i got to do is do these things and try to honor God with my wealth, and he's going to bless me, and then I can just turn around and live like the rest of the world? Then I can try to keep up with the Joneses? I can chase that American dream, and that's not how it works. It's kind of like treating God like he's a four-year-old that we're going to pull a quarter out from behind his ear and he's going to have no idea how we did it. You ever heard the statement, there's the rub? One of my favorite movies as a young adult was about this guy who has his girlfriend break up with him and the whole movie is about him just trying to get over her or get her back, one of the two. And there's this one scene where he's sitting down at a diner with a good friend of his and somebody says, so you really want her back? And he says, yeah, you know, I'll do anything. I want her back. And he says, okay, if you really want her back, what you got to do is forget about her. He's like, oh, so all I got to do is pretend like I forgot about her, and then she's going to come back. And he's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You might start pretending like you forgot about her, but then you're really going to forget about her, and that's when she's going to come back. And he realizes in that moment that if he forgets about her, he's not going to want her to come back. And he says, so there's the rub. His buddy responds, there's the rub. If we use wealth in this kind of matter, if we think, man, I just got to check off the right boxes, and then God's going to be forced to bless me. I'm going to force his hand. He's going to give me that, and then I'm going to just turn and live like the world. Well, there's the rub, because it doesn't work that way. Because what happens is when you start spending your money and honoring God with your wealth, something happens inside of you. Your, your heart begins to change, and you begin to become about things that God is about. When you start honoring God with your wealth, you start investing in things that God invests in. You start valuing things that God values so that when he blesses you, you don't want to turn anymore and spend the money the way the world does. And there's the rub. There's the rub. Proverbs 3 says, honor God with your wealth. And then the second thing, honor God with your first fruits. What does that mean, first fruits? Does that mean we have to be farmers? I mean, if it does, we live in the right state for that, right? Because there's plenty of farming to be done here, but that's not what it's talking about. Let me give you a little bit of context of first fruits. Um, back in the Old Testament, when they would plant a field, they would automatically, when they went out to harvest the field, they would give God the first 10%. That was their first fruits. That was the best that they had. And they would give it to him right off the top and say, God, this is yours. One of the reasons why this is important is because of what that actually did in a person's heart when they gave God their first fruits. What this did is say, God, I recognize that this is yours. I mean, the, the soil. You led us to this good soil where we planted our crops. You gave us the sun for these crops. You gave us the rain for these crops. You actually caused these crops to grow. This is yours, and you have given it to us by your goodness and your faithfulness. So here is the first 10%. Give them the best right off the top. And what happens is when they give them the first 10%, what they were doing is they were trusting God for that other 90%. They were saying, man, you've been good to us. You've given us good things, so we trust that you're going to provide the rest that we need. You're going to give us everything 
else that we need. The problem with not giving God the first fruits is sometimes we say, well, you know, I've got some bills, God. You know, there's some things that I've invested my money in that I need this money for, so let's just see how this goes a little bit. And we get further down the line, we'll see if we have enough, and then, and then if I have enough, I'll, I'll give you whatever's left over. It might be tempting to give God the leftovers, but if you really want to honor God, give him the first fruits. Give him the first things you have. And one of the best ways you can do this is to tithe. I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm going to tell you that because it is good for your heart to give money to God's church and God's kingdom advancement to the rest of the world. You know, when I first became a Christian, tithing was like the last spiritual discipline that I actually developed. And the reason why is because our family went through this really poor season where the money was just dried up. And when I got out to be on my own, I said, I am, I am never going to be poor like this. I never want to struggle like this. So I made security an idol of having money and always trying to, to have enough. When I went to church, I would reach into my wallet and I would take out that nice crisp $10 bill and I'd put it in the offering plate as it went by and I felt really good about myself. But man, I'll tell you what, when, when I looked into my wallet and I forgot to put a smaller bill in there and I only had a 20, oh, that was hard. I was like white-knuckling that $20 bill into the offering plate and you just about had to pry my fingers off that to get me to drop it in. And the reason why is because my money had to get me that idol. So I can't give my money to you, God, because if I give it to you, how am I going to get this idol? So I said, this is my money. I'm going to use it how I want, and I have to chase that idol. But guess what happened is I began to tithe and give on a regular basis. My heart began to change. And as my heart began to change, I loved to be more generous and, and give more and more. And one of the coolest things that happened out of that is that this money that I had to have so I didn't end up poor or struggling, it lost its hold on me. I was a slave to this money, and I no longer became a slave to that money. I was released from that. I found joy in giving, and I recognized that, God, this is all yours. And I was grateful for it and found joy in giving it back to him. But then a second interesting thing happened. It's like I always had enough. I always had enough for my needs. And this is going to sound crazy, but it was as if God saw me investing in his kingdom and gave me more resources to invest in his kingdom. Well, that shouldn't sound crazy at all because it's in the Bible. If you remember a story that Jesus told in Matthew and Luke, he told this parable of this, this guy who goes on a journey and uh, he goes to three of his servants, and he gives them money. And he gives one, we'll just, we'll just say 10 bucks. He gives one 10 bucks, gives another one 5 bucks, gives another one $1. And he comes back, and the one who had 10 bucks had made another 10. The one who had 5 had made another 5. And the guy who was given $1, he said, what did you do with it? And he said, well, you know, I was a little afraid of you, so I, I just buried it, and here's your $1 back. And the final, like, consummation of that 
is the guy says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Well, he's not talking about the guy that he gave one dollar to. That guy he calls wicked. He's talking to the guy with ten. So he takes the one from the third and gives it to the one with ten because he's investing in his kingdom. If you were an investor and you had two brokers and one broker only broke even or lost you money, that was like his track record. Then you had another broker that constantly doubled your money. When you came into the new fiscal year, would you say, well, let's be fair, let's just keep dividing this money up equally? No, you would say, well, let's, let's give, it, give more to the guy who is doubling our money. It only makes sense. Line your heart, heart up with God's heart and invest in his kingdom and see what happens. But there's a lot more to this than just see what happens. Yes, we need to give because scripture tells us to give and it is vital. It's a vital spiritual discipline. But there's some strong gospel implications for us to be driven to be able to give. There's so many things I could tell you right now of like, hey, what's the gospel motivation for, for this? And let me just kind of hit on one. This is really important. In the gospel, we are told that we are as sons and daughters and we are heirs to the kingdom of God and promised an eternal inheritance. Eternal. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. So we were, we were dead and were made alive to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Man, that gives me the, the chills. I, I love that. That's one of my favorite verses. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Let me just paraphrase that a little bit for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, your inheritance is really good. It's really good. And it will never go bad. And it will last forever. Sandlot, forever. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Did you catch that? Jesus says, don't be distracted by the things of this world. You know, you're going to be distracted, you're going to be drawn in to all of these things that look like treasures here, and guess what? They're going to, they're going to rust. They're going to wear out. Keep your eyes on things that are eternal, where things will last forever. Invest in that kingdom. Don't invest in the things that are just going to go bad. You can't take it with you. Don't invest in those things. Invest in things that are eternal. Set your eyes on eternity. Randy Elkhorn and his this is just a great little book. It's called The Treasure Principle. Um, this is such a good one. If, if you're one of those people who are, are learning to tithe for the first time and, and give your money away, like this is a must-read. 
Um, when I preached a sermon at our church, one of the guys uh, who was leading worship that day said, yeah, my dad made, a, made us all read that, like every single one of his children. This is actually my four-year-old daughter's favorite book. Um, she likes it because it's small, and it's got a locket on the front, she says. Um, so she says, I love that book. And I say, you don't even know how to read. <laughs> so let's see if that's still her favorite book when she knows how to read. But Randy Elkhorn, in this book, he said, live for the line, not for the dot. You have no idea what that means, so let me explain it to you. Okay, now imagine drawing a line that would go for eternity. This really long line. Obviously, you can't draw a line for eternity, right, because you would just keep on going forever and ever and ever. So just imagine that line. It's It's a huge line, right? Then put one dot on that line. And that one little dot represents our short time here on earth. It's like the blink of an eye. Snap of a finger. It is so short. And yet, we live like that dot is all there is. He said, live for the line and not for the dot. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that the treasures of this earth will rust and fall apart. They're temporary, so live for the line. You know, our building construction, one of the ways we've been able to keep costs down is by recycling all of the metal, um, which is kind of a pain in the butt, but there's, there's lots of steel studs all over the place, and we, we've taken out some pipes that they run some of the electrical through, and we just stack it in a, in a big pile, and I feel bad for the guys that do the dumpster diving looking for metal because they just dive in there and they come out empty-handed every single time. But it helps us to pay for our dumpsters that we have out there. And this, this last time, um, I went just around the corner here. There's a place called All Metals Recycling. Anybody ever been there or know it ex- existed? Okay, one person. Two people, all right. So it, does, it doesn't look like a place that should be on Park Avenue. It looks out of place completely. I didn't even know it was there. And I drive down this long road right off Park Ave. I'm not kidding. Just drive up that way right before the railroad tracks. And you drive way back in there. And it's a junkyard right on Park Avenue or Park Street. And um, I'm driving in there. And I have our trailer that we pull all our stuff, do a load in, load out from the church. And just filled with metal to the brim. And I thought I was in the wrong place because everybody else was driving in a junk car with all the wheels off of it. And I started looking around and thinking, oh, I'm in the wrong spot. And I had no way to turn around. I get up there, of course, I'm in the right spot. But two things kind of struck me from that drive-in. One, everybody's driving off these junk cars. And guess what? At some point, that car was brand spanking new. Somebody drove that off the lot they thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is so great. That new car smell. Do you love that? This is awesome. Like 15 to 20 years down the road, its wheels are off and it's getting dropped off from metal. That's some of our treasures here on earth. What we save up and store for just ends up in a trash heap. Second thing that crossed my mind is, wouldn't it have been awesome if there would have been a bumper sticker on one of those cars that said, he, with the most toys, or, he who dies with the most toys wins? That wasn't on there, but I wish it was. But I guarantee you it's happened before, right? Somebody bought a really nice car, put that bumper sticker on the back, and it ends up in the trash heap. Jesus says, don't 
Let your eyes be on the things of this world. Let them be on eternity. Our culture says, as your money, you earned it. Spend it any way you please and you'll be happy. But God's word says, honor God with your money and you'll be content. See, society measures that and it always says it's not quite enough. But when you look at it through scripture's lens, every time you measure your wealth, you will always see it is more than I need. We live in one of the richest nations in the world. You are, you are filthy rich. There's no way to ever look at what you have and say it's not enough. You have more than you need. If materialism was a disease, what do you think the cure is? If materialism is a disease, what's the cure for it? Well, it's not spending, right? I mean, that's what got you into the disease in the first place. It's not saving. We've already seen how that's an idol as well. The only cure for materialism is to give. The only cure for materialism is to give. Elkhorn says, giving is living for the lime. Giving is living for eternity. Storing your treasures not here on earth, but in heaven. My favorite quote on money is from the missionary Jim Elliott, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So just a few things, a few application points. Set your eyes not on the things of this earth, but on eternity. Be grateful for what you have. Be grateful for what you've given. And then the third thing, challenge yourself to give more. I'm going to end with, with a little bit of a challenge here. Um, but let me actually just start with a, a confession. We've been doing our capital campaign. You guys are probably still in the midst of it if you've only been in this building for a year and a half. Um, so we challenged our people to give, and they've been extremely generous. But one of the things that has happened in, with people giving, and I see everything that's coming in because I'm tracking how far we are, um, one of the things that I see is that my eyes are still on comfort a lot. Not only for myself, but for those I love. Let me give you a couple examples of people that were more than generous. And then when I saw what they gave, I said, no. You can't give that much. This is going to make you uncomfortable. This is going to sting a little bit. We had one family that they have like 174 kids or something like that. <laughs> they actually only have four kids, but they're all between the ages of like six and one and a half, so they're all just running through. So you try to count them, and you get up to 174. Um, but they have four kids, and they had debt, and they wanted to be more generous with what they had, so they sold their house and moved back into an apartment. Man, I think that's just so good. They looked at it and said, I have all this debt. How do I get out of this? How do I get to a point where I can actually be generous and give, give my money? And they said, we got to sell our house. we got to go back into an apartment. So they started using the money from the sale of the house to actually pay off a lot of that debt. And then we do this capital campaign, and they were extremely generous. And I see that, and I say, no, you can't do that. This money is supposed to be to get you out of debt. I mean, look at all that you're, you're, you're suffering, and you, you, can't, you can't give this much money. So I'm more concerned about their comfort than I am 
their generosity and giving and getting away from that materialism, slavery that we get caught up in. Second example, I'm going to brag on my oldest son. He's 10 years old, Weston. He's was saving up for a video game, and he sat in service when we were talking about the capital campaign one day, and he had 60 bucks saved up for this video game and just gave it away. Just gave it away for the building. What, what is he going to get out of it? He wanted a good place to have a children's ministry, and he could invite his, his friends to, and he bought into this vision and said, I've been saving up for this video game, and I want to give it to the church. I love that. Of course, he's been rewarded because I shared that illustration, and a couple of the girls in there were like, Wesson, we're taking you out. We're going to have a Lego day, so I'm pretty sure they're going to buy him a bunch of Legos, and he's going to be blessed, but still, it's, it's, it's heart of just seeing something like, I really need this, and then buying in to the kingdom of God and seeing the good of it says, you know what? This money is more important here. I'm going to read you a scripture, and I'm going to leave you with one last challenge. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I want to challenge you guys this morning. You know, maybe you're, you're people who give, but maybe you're one of those people who give and it's just really easy for you. You know, I love the electronic giving that we do, but sometimes it's just so easy to just send it that way and you don't really think about it and it doesn't take anybody out of a comfort zone. And if you're one of those people who gives and it never stings a little bit, I would just encourage you to be a little uncomfortable with your giving sometimes. To actually give more and say, man, I don't know how we're going to give this much, but if we do, maybe we'll have to, to sell something. Maybe we'll have to cut out Starbucks for a little while, but I want, to, I want to have my giving just sting a little bit. If you're someone yet who has yet to embrace tithing and giving to your local church, I mean, just start small. You know, whether it's 10, 20 bucks, just start giving your money away and just see what God does in your heart. But I want to challenge you all. Giving is the cure for materialism. I want you to leave here, and I want you to just think about, like, if there's a family that, that is in need, just bless their socks off. Give them some money. Don't, don't announce it. Just drop it on their doorstep and just walk away. If you know a missionary friend who's been calling you, just bless them. Um, if, if you've been yet to give to the capital campaign, give, give something to them, but take your money and give and just see what God does with that. Let's pray. God, we do come before you and we confess that sometimes we do treat money like the rest of the world, that we put our hopes in the things that money can buy. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you remind us that those things don't last. Let our eyes not be caught up on the things that are in this world that look so shiny and appetizing, but help us to see that those things never cure our hunger for more. 
Set our hearts and our minds on the things that are eternal, the things that are you, you are about. Holy Spirit, help us to value things the way God does. Let us see that you have given us all that we need. And let us turn from that and be generous and give our money. We pray this in your name. Amen.